So welcome to Smarten Up with JP and Fab. We're going to be meeting with uh, Nick Rotundo. He's been helping us do valuations for the past 10 years. That's right. Um, Nick is a CBV. What's uh, what's the long form of this? Charter Business Valuator. Okay. And uh, <laughs> all right, let's take it from there. Nick Rotundo. Today, it sounds it sounds kind of nerdy, but it's this is going to be good, I promise. It's going to be on business valuations. In essence, one of the biggest questions that I get a lot from business owners, small yeah. business owners, is, okay, what's my business worth? Yeah. All right? Um, and what I find personally is that the business owner often has an overinflated idea of what their business is worth, and the market has an underinflated idea of what the business is worth. Yeah. But there are methodologies to calculate what a business is worth in the market, right? And that's why we brought you on. So Nick, you're you're a chartered business valuator, chartered accountant, chartered professional accountant. Yeah. Can you explain what a chartered business valuator is? Because most people don't know what that is. Yeah, no, absolutely. So um, like the uh, CA profession, it's an accounting designation. Mm-hmm. So a uh, chartered business valuator for short is CBV. And it's essentially a specialized uh, designation that focuses on valuing private assets or private shares uh, of companies. So unlike sort of the public market where you can sort of determine what shares of Apple are worth on a daily basis, in order to value private shares, there's a specialized designation uh, internationally, a CBV. Uh, and you can value shares of private companies and, and also assets because there's also intangible assets that a company can have uh, Value them. So you can value uh, Apple, you said? <laughs> no, I said unlike Apple, which, <laughs> oh, is sort of, okay. which is valued sort of on the, on, on the public market. Right. That's daily uh, sort of uh, right. valued for the shares. But private markets obviously a little bit different because the market isn't as a liquid. And obviously some of the information is, is held private, right? It's not publicly disclosed. Okay, perfect. So what I want to get out of this is really I want to get an understanding of a, the methodologies that are used, yep. standard. B, when somebody needs a valuation of their business, okay? And C, for those of us who own businesses, um, if we know the methodologies used to calculate, how do we organize our businesses in such a manner that we can achieve top dollar when we want to exit, yeah, yeah. right? So let's start, I think, with... Um, I think it's important to establish when uh, someone yeah. would need sort of a business valuation. So uh, I think generally there's there's four types uh, or four uh, avenues where you need a sort of a business valuation. So the first instance is transactional. So you have an owner who's looking to potentially sell their business or sell their shares, and they kind of want an idea of, you know, what's, what's my business worth? Uh, and, and they'll hire someone, they'll hire a CBB to, to do an, an appraisal sort of business valuation on th- those assets or shares of their company. On the flip side of that, if someone's looking to acquire uh, a, a business, they're sort of want a sense of, you know what, what is this business worth? Um, sort of what's the invested capital that, that I'm looking at to, to sort of buy this business? So both from a transactional standpoint. Mm-hmm. In addition to that, uh, for financing purposes, if you're looking to acquire business or to get an additional loan from the bank or, or a lender, they're going to want to know sort of what your cash flows and, you know, what is this business worth uh, lending to? So they're, therefore, you know, they'll, they'll call on a CBV to sort of do an analysis 
on what a business is worth uh, from that perspective. So that's sort of the first uh, scope of why someone would need a, a business valuation. Second tranche of what I would say is for income tax purposes. Unfortunately, you know, the tax man is always going to sort of come after you and uh, you're going to sort of need to do uh, proper tax planning. And obviously, you know what, uh, Capital and McDonald can obviously provide sort of the tax planning purposes of when you need to do a corporate reorg or income state uh, com uh, income tax compliance purposes. But uh, I would say generally for tax planning purposes is another reason why you would need a business valuation. That was a good pitch for us. I like that. Yeah, absolutely. So gonna, anybody yeah. anybody that we get from this, we'll, we'll have yeah. to cut you in. Yeah, yeah no, because I think it's important for uh, someone to understand is there's a lot of tax planning and business valuation. They kind of go hand in hand. Uh, and I'm going to speak about it later in, in the podcast, but it's important not to do the sort of the business valuation uh, in isolation from the tax planning, they kind of go hand in hand, and it's important to talk to your accountants uh, and, and your your evaluator to sort of discuss that. Well, yeah, the Income Tax Act mentions fair market value exactly, yeah, hundreds and hundreds yeah. of times without ever defining it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. right. Uh, and I'd say the third reason why you would need sort of a business valuation is uh, for just the strategy purposes. So, if you're looking for succession planning, often I deal with a lot of clients that. Uh, they have their children running the business and they want to transfer it over to them or other family members and they kind of want an idea so that even though it's sort of a related party transaction they obviously want to be compensated for the hard work that they put into their business um, there's also reasons for uh, ESOPs which is employee stock option plan oftentimes we have clients where they don't have necessarily children that are actively involved in the business or they don't want to take part in the business and they have a number of sort of uh, employees that have been operating in the business for a number of years and they want to sort of keep the business going and they feel that the best sense or the best person to sort of transition that amount over to uh, our employees so they transfer it over to them and, and they want an assessment of what the fair market value is and also from a uh, management uh, remuneration standpoint if someone wants to be compensated for What's their business worth? They, I want to look to sell it or I want to get some management involved in the company. That's why you would need sort of a CBV to, to value the business. So I thought are, you said there was four things. You yeah, just, like you just more. rhymed off like 50. No, no. So there, I, would say <laughs> four there, yeah, yeah. Four, I would say there's four big bucks <laughs> right. buckets. Transactions, sort of M&A. Uh, the second is for tax planning purposes. Right. Third is strategy. And then the last one is if you're looking for dispute purposes, unfortunately, okay. like yeah. shareholder disputes. Um, if someone's uh, going through a divorce or a separation, oftentimes, unfortunately, they'll, they'll call a CBB and get a sense of what what their business is worth. Uh, there's also shareholder disputes. Oftentimes, you have clients that, uh, you know what, they're 50-50 shareholders. One shareholder sort of wants to take a business one way, another shareholder wants to take a business another in a different avenue. So obviously there's there's an impasse there and they just want to be bought out or, or sold. So I would say there's a four buckets right. for, for doing a business. Yeah, like if a shareholder dies, if there's three shareholders, yeah. one of the shareholders die and they don't have a clause in their yeah. shareholders agreement, you know, it's only fair to do a business valuation to pay that one third shareholders exactly. estate yeah. out. Okay. Do you get called in more uh, at the beginning or, or more towards the end? Um, I, I would say towards the end. Yeah, yeah. because post, most people like mess up at the beginning and, and and then you have to come in and deal with all the shit that's at the end. Yeah, I, I think people fail to, to, to plan. Right, okay. <laughs> right, yeah. rather than they plan yeah, to yeah. fail. So it's just oftentimes 
will get called in afterwards. If the clients uh, are good planners ahead of time, they'll speak with their lawyers ahead of time, they'll sort of um, have all that information or all those formulas sort of built into the shareholders agreement, how they're gonna divide assets. Uh, but again, it, it's how good the shareholders agreement is sort of dictated, because uh, there's obviously, there's only so much that you can plan for. Um, you know, to have untimely deaths, et cetera. But there's also things there that, well, what, what happens if someone just gets really tired of the business, right, and decides to leave, right? Right. Um, and, and anything could really happen. And you know what, if we've uh, lived through anything in the last uh, couple of years, it's that, you know what, expect the unexpected, right? So anything could happen. So your, your, your first advice actually sounds like uh, would be to plan better at the beginning when starting a business. Yeah, absolutely. Like talk to your financial advisors, talk to your accountants, talk to your lawyers about, you know, what we were setting up this business. And, you know, I don't blame business owners that, that, that start from scratch. Obviously, the first thing that they're, they're thinking about is, you know what, we have to generate money. I, I want this to be sort of my business. Uh, and then sort of afterwards, they, then they start thinking, you know, what about succession planning, et cetera. But it's not top of mind uh, early on. And you know what, you can't really blame them for that. But I think it's important as business owners start evolving it, uh, into their business and after a number of years and they see that it's something that they can transition over to either uh, their their kids or other family members or a potential acquirer that they start thinking about, well, you know what, what do I do? How do I start to plan for this succession going forward? Um, and I think it's important also to realize that that doesn't happen in a vacuum. Uh, business owners don't realize, oh, you know what, it's time to sell, right? I see everything as a discounted cash flows in essence. It's what are my future cash flows? When am I projecting that I'm gonna get those cash flows discounted back to today, right? And you can look at that in a couple different ways, or let's say with real estate, uh, rental properties, right? What am I looking at? I'm looking at the cap rate, yeah. which is simply, uh, you know, you know, what is my net rents? What are the net rents? And, you know, what is it, what is it uh, paying right now? That's one way to look at it. But I'm also looking at it from the sense of, okay, what are my net rents going to be over a period of time? And what am I expecting the potential capital gain to be over a period of time discounted to today? That's how I'm making my uh, valuation decisions, right? Now, with respect to private businesses, I'm thinking of it in a similar manner. There's really, in my opinion, two ways, in, in my opinion, whether this is right or wrong. There's two ways to look at it. Either we're liquidating the business, which means that whatever the net ass, the, the assets after the liabilities are, what's the, the liquidation value? And that's for a business that isn't a going concern, that isn't going to be continuing. If it is a business that, that's gonna continue, I'm looking at it, let's say, as a purchaser. What am I going to get in the future discounted right. to today? Right. That's essentially how I see business valuations. But obviously, there's a lot more when you when you look under the hood right yeah no absolutely so i i think you hit on some some important uh components <clears throat> i think generally when it comes to valuations no business or industry is there's one sort of rule of thumb or there's one formula it really uh is as a case-by-case -case basis on the industry the components specific to the company but historically i would say there's three approaches to value a, a business or, or shares of a business um so the first method is an asset-based methodology. And we use that methodology or approach when the business itself, its value is really tied into the value of the assets that the business holds. 
So as an example there, if you're looking for a real estate holding company where you have this sort of this commercial building that's worth tens of millions of dollars, if they're amortizing this or you know what their their net income is fairly low and let's say hundreds of thousands of dollars, you're not going to be sort of looking at the earnings of the business and say, well, you know what, this company is earning sort of $100,000 a year. Uh, let me put a multiple on that earnings. You're looking at the value of the real estate, and that's where sort of the, the highest value that it's going to generate for that business. So when we're looking at sort of the fair market value, generally what we're looking at is the highest return or the highest amount that a purchaser can get from selling their business. So that goes into the definition of fair market value. And I'm going to be using sort of analogies for real estate. I know Canadians love to talk about the real estate market, but it's just to get someone a sense of an understanding of sort of how to, how to value businesses. So where we're looking at the highest uh, value that someone can get from their business, it's no different than if someone has a partial uh, a parcel of land like right on Lakeshore, right? Let's say they have a small shack or, you know, this right. beat that, beat and down house there. The highest value isn't necessarily what that house is worth. It's the land that's associated with uh, that property that they're looking at. So we look at it from a number of, uh, of different avenues to say, okay, what's the, after the three different approaches, there's an asset approach, uh, which I touched upon, and afterwards I'll go into the market approach. And then there's also an earnings or, or cash flow approach that you, that you mentioned. So when we're looking at an asset-based approach, it's like, well, you know what, is this the highest value that a seller is going to get for their business? And generally, those businesses are real estate holding companies or investment holding companies where un- their underlying value is really the assets that are tied in- into the business. So we-, we also use that approach, unfortunately, when the business itself isn't generating a sufficient return uh, on earnings. So you know what, if a company has... Um, tens of millions of dollars in assets and it's sort of breaking even then a potential purchaser wouldn't necessarily buy the company for its earnings or cash flows they're going to be buying it for the assets that the business has or, it, or it's worth so that's sort of one one avenue or one approach that we use an asset approach so I, I just want to touch on that and I yeah. mean you I look at I look at this completely different okay so we're going to get to like the normalized earnings approach after yeah but I mean discounted cash flows cap rates uh, to me that to me that's just a form of valuing but that's not the fair market value correct right yeah. the fair market so you're talking about a, a building that's worth 10 million you know I'll equate it to you know that's why at the beginning I said apple because you know if you if you valued apple the shares of apple are worth way more than the company itself so I just want to touch on that point. Yeah. Like you're figuring out from an educated standpoint <clears throat> what the value should be, but Correct. that's not necessarily the fair market value because fair market value is what someone will pay for it. Right. So fair market value is the hypothetical value that a purchaser would pay for, for the shares of that company. Right. So when it comes to uh, a real estate uh, holding company, you're going to pay the, for what the assets are actually worth to liquidate. So if the building is worth $10 million, uh, you have a mortgage of, let's say, $5 million, plus or minus, you're willing to pay, let's say, $5 million of what the business is worth, not necessarily looking at the earnings that the holding company is generating because the earnings are going to be significantly lower than what the building or what the company is worth. Okay. Yeah. 
Yeah, so that would be like a liquidation value based on the mar- fair market value, uh, uh, the quotable fair market value of the assets, right? right? So right. like, you know, if you have a holding company that just holds public company stocks, right. that's actually quite easy to value because there's a market for those public companies. And right. second by second, we know what those companies are technically worth based on last trade. Right. Right. But the caveat to that is if you're looking at uh, assets of a privately held company and if they have inventory or accounts receivable, et cetera, we make the assumption that, you know what, you're going to get sort of book value and an equals fair market value. But often, as the case is, chances are you're, you're going to be spending like selling costs to sort of liquidate those values. So right. I would say an asset approach is generally used when the business isn't returning a sufficient uh, return for, for the investor. To mm-hmm. potentially purchase that business, so or it's going to wind up. Yeah, or it's going right. to wind up. Okay. So the second uh, approach that we use in valuation is the market approach, and this approach very similar to if you were looking to sell your home. Uh, you know, what is your home worth? So let's say you have a detached home in, in the Oakville area, and your neighbor just put their home similar. Uh, 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 dimensions it's a detached home as well they sold it for two million dollars using the market analogy there your home should be worth two million dollars it's in the same neighborhood it's in oakville etc so that's a simplistic view but there's also a lot of uh, different parameters that come into play you don't necessarily know what renovations your neighbor's done they could have different additions if they have a pool uh, renovated kitchen downstairs upstairs new paint job etc and let's say you haven't renovated your home at all in the last 20 years you wouldn't necessarily say that it's worth $2 million because there's obviously a discount to, to that home. So very similar from a market approach, what we're doing is we're looking at uh, two different parameters. We're looking at uh, the industry and getting a private comparables to say, okay, you know what? These businesses have sold or they've transacted at X amount of dollars. Therefore, if they're in the same industry as yours and they have similar uh, comparable uh, dimensions as your company, then we can sort of use that as a gauge or sort of a rule of thumb to say what your business is worth. The challenge with that is, and often I hear business owners saying, well, you know what, this to- this sold for two times revenue or four times earnings or et cetera. It is. The data or the information we get from private sales isn't necessarily, It's first off, it's really difficult to get, uh, you know, there are proprietary uh, companies that uh, publish that, that data. You have to paid certain fees to get access to but uh, the information is limited right there aren't that there aren't that many sales or private company information available to uh, someone who's looking to find out well what what did this company sell sell for and the rationale for that is simple you know what if someone is a private seller why are they going to disclose that information you're not going to disclose their earnings you're not going to disclose sort of that information so I would say using the market approach is often difficult because Number one, the data really isn't there. And if the data is there, then the second caveat is, well, how comparable is that company to your company? So as an example, you can find out what Magna sort of trading, trading on, on the stock exchange. And if you're a manufacturer of auto parts, it's like, well, you can't really compare yourself to Magna because there's obviously a lot of differences. Uh, size is definitely one thing but also their uh, revenues are diverse into a number of different segments in the auto business. So even though you're looking at the same industry, 
it's often difficult to compare uh, that company to, to your own company when you're using this approach. Just like I said with the home, there's going to be different dimensions, different situations where one home is going to be worth more than the other. And it's, it's left to the evaluator to sort of make those adjustments to say, well, you know what, this is, here's a premium for, for this company versus a discount uh, for something that you have beneficial versus someone else. Uh, so I, I'd say there, there's a caveat or, you know, we put less stake into the market approach just because there's less data available uh, using that. Because it's private. Yeah, the information is right. private. It isn't there. And again, there's so many different parameters that come into play to say, well, company X is sold at four times. Your business is the same. Well, you know, you don't necessarily have that information. So you guys are just that. building assumptions after assumptions. Here. Yeah, exactly. Okay. So we sort of use that as we, we look at it holistically to look at it as, well, you know what, doesn't make sense. But I, I, would, I wouldn't uh, use that as a primary methodology that we use. So when you're doing valuation, you actually value under all three methods? Uh, you know, we, we, what we do is generally, depending on the industry, I can, I can take a look at the financial statements. If I see that the company is earning a sufficient return, I'll generally look at the earnings approach, which is the, the third approach that I'm going to talk to next. If I see that uh, the company isn't doing that well, chances are you know it's going to rely on an asset base. But we kind of do uh, all three uh, right. sort of at the same time because uh, we want to give the benefit to the seller because fair market value is the highest price that someone's w willing to sell their business, right? And and as an active seller in your company, obviously you want the premium dollar for that, right? Right. Okay. Now, just to interject there before you get onto the earnings-based approach with the market-based approach. I would imagine certain industries um, are easier to do a market-based approach. I'll give you an example, like certain professional services, um, accounting firms, dental practices, um, a book of insurance yep. businesses, uh, like an insurance business that has renewals, yep. right? Um, an investment advisor's book of business that has renewals or trailers or automatic fees. I would assume those are probably easier to apply a market-based approach because they almost present like a commodity like for for example um you know uh, a dental practice i've been involved in a lot of yep. uh, mergers and acquisitions with dental practices and they seem to have a standard range um based on repeatable clientele or repeatable patients and the age of their equipment and so on and so forth there seems to be a pretty a pretty standard range um, upon which they're able to sell. And that range, you know, depending on the, the quality of the equipment and the, and the repeatability of the patients and the length of time that the, the practice has been established, it's really based on, it seems to me based on um, annual revenues, right? Plus minus a certain premium or discount, yeah. right? What what I would say is there's certain industries where they have sort of their rules of thumb, mm -hmm. uh, and there's certain practices. You know, you mentioned dentistry practice. Usually, they take uh, like a portion of revenues and sort of a portion of, of, of earnings. And I, I've seen a number of adjustments that they make. You know, age of equipment, how long they've been in the business, etc. So, what I would would say to that is there's certain industries where county practices and 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 let's say wealth wealth practices as well where you're looking at uh, their book of business and they usually apply a multiple on their book of business whether it be one times their book 
Um, I've seen dental practices go for X amount of, of revenue, et cetera. So I think historically they've sort of used that as a basis, as a gauge for, you know what, I don't want to get evaluator there or, you know what, this is sort of historically mm -hmm. what's been done in the past. And, and they use those, those rules of thumb. Uh, and, you know, we do look at industry sort of analysis and ratios to say, you know what, does it make sense um, based on the value that we come up with? But I, I would say overall, it's really industry specific. And there's certain industries in the past that have transacted based on those multiples or those historic sort of rules of thumb. Uh, and people stick stick with that, right? But I mean, business valuations and risks in the business, it, it's fluid, it changes. So for example, de dentist practices, uh, dental practices that you mentioned, the multiples on revenues or earnings have skyrocketed considerably based on historic uh, transactions. So you can't really stay sort of focused right. on, you know what, it, it's just one times revenues because um, billings have, have increased, um, et cetera, right? So, yeah, for sure. And I think yeah. the market in that specific market, the market of young dentists looking to purchase yeah. practices, um, has probably increased and also the the banks have been quite loose in yeah. lending yeah. right so there's also the just the supply and demand right you know, you know it's supply and demand and i think it's a function of the markets as a whole mm -hmm. um you know what touching upon sort of the public markets people are willing to pay x time for for, for growth in, in price in right. p ratios or revenues whereas in the past we used to look at sort of um, manufacturers as sort of a stable basis. So, you know, you're going to pay four times earnings or three times earnings, right. but people are willing to pay X amount for exponential growth, right? Like and that's what, that's what I was getting to yeah, before, yeah. where it's like, I don't even know about the valuations because people are just crazy. Money's <laughs> so cheap and it's like, yeah, I'll just buy, I'll, I'll buy it and figure it out. Yeah, I, I would say that the, the metrics and the multiples that are, people are using are sort of being stretched to the extreme. Uh, you know what, you can't really, like, as an example, you look at Tesla, if you look at their price per earnings ratio, you know, it, it's ridiculous. Like they're yeah. paying hundreds of times earnings where you can't really use the parameters in the past where a good solid business was, you were paying in the teens for, for a PE ratio. Now people are paying in the hundreds right. and, and those those prices are, I, I wouldn't pay for those amounts, but people are justifying that, you know what, those technology companies have that growth. So if you're looking for a dental practice, people see that exponential growth happening. There's uh, supply issues with, with new dentists coming on the market. They see a surging demand, um, you know, more people doing sort of um, aesthetic purposes from a dental perspective, and they can pay a premium to that, right? So uh, right. It, it's very fluid and, and oftentimes multiples multiples change so all right so now getting to the final uh, approach the earnings yeah. based approach so you know i do a bunch of um you know small reorgs for private companies and i'm often i'm often doing valuations right because it's like okay it's just a small tax reorg we don't need to be 150 percent exact here and there's you know from a practicality and a cost perspective yeah. to get um an absolute valuation specialists involved it's not always feasible yeah. right how do you feel about that he's he's, yeah. he's cutting you out of yeah this he's deal. cutting my business <laughs> <What> here <the laughs> but no as, but as it's pretty common yeah. though it's pretty common <laughs> for the you know the the tax accountant doing the reorg to make yeah. the determination okay do, does this need to go is it is there any other individual are there any other family members that could you know lead to an argument down the road um is the cra going to be fine with this do we need 
the the CBV. Oftentimes when there's an estate freeze or I'm involving other people or there's a complicated transaction like a surplus strip where the CRA is really going to look at yeah. the the fair market value. It's like, okay, listen, you know, this isn't what I do for a living. So bring it over to, to a, a chartered business valuator. And with that approach, usually for the most part, we're using sort of an earnings multiple approach, correct? Right. Yeah. So I, I would say from an earnings perspective, there's really sort of uh, two different uh, approaches. So one of the approaches you touched upon, touched upon is uh, using a discounted cash flow. And essentially what that means is you're projecting into the future what this business is going to earn sort of going forward. And then you're present valuing that stream of cash flows. On your elbow, your mask is stuck. Oh. Oh, I forgot YouTube. about this. <laughs> you know, this is the COVID times when you yeah, see the mask. Check out now. YouTube. He's got. Yeah. It. Yeah. <laughs> let's let's hope that's a thing of the past. Yeah. So, yeah. In a couple of years. But. So we're at, we're at the earnings uh, discounted earnings. Yeah. yeah. So uh, when you you project sort of cash flows, yeah. and then you're present valuing the, the, those earnings to get a, uh, a sense of what the value of the company is with. So I would say one of the challenges that I face on a daily basis when dealing with clients is. It's really hard to project cash flows. Uh, they're always uh, wrong. It's just a matter of how wrong they are. Right. And there's certain businesses that are more reliable than others. You know, you mentioned real estate, so you know you're going to get a set, steady stream of um, uh, a, a revenue from rental. So you you can sort of dictate what your rent is going to be sort of going forward, and then you want to present value that to see what it's worth. If you're not in sort of in a stable business where you know you don't have regular contracts with let's say the government or, or real estate, it's really hard to sort of forecast. And secondary earnings approaches, we, we kind of look at your historical earnings and say, okay, you know what, the best guide for what the company is going to sort of earn going forward uh, is, is based, based on, on historic. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So is this? I mean, did we we all learned this as chartered accountants? Like, is this a normalized earnings approach? Would yes. Oh, okay. So yeah, this just is back out all the bullshit and come up to a good net income. And then you guys have this crazy cap rate that you guys <laughs> hide from the rest of the world. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's a sort of multiple, um, uh, multiple based on the industry, right? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So uh, essentially the third approach uh, is earnings or cash flows. Uh, and what we do there is we look at a prospective purchaser is looking to pay you your pay for the earnings or cash flow that that business will sort of generate going forward. Um, so what is that? Earn so there's two components. There's the earnings and then the risks associated with earning uh, the cash flows associated with that business. So the first thing we do is uh, we look at the financial statements uh, that the Capital and McDonald sort of prepares. We sort of look at the net income there. And that sort of serves as a basis for evaluation. So what we do is we, we sort of normal what we term as normalized earnings. So what essentially that means is the net income that the company earns on their statements isn't necessarily the cash flows that another acquirer would gain by purchasing the business. Because oftentimes there's a lot of transactions that have happened within the business that aren't going to occur going forward. So as an example, um, you often deal with a lot of um, private companies where an owner will take like a huge humongous salary within the business and you know what it's their business they're entitled to do that they want to minimize sort of their corporate taxes so they take a salary of a million dollars I should say so the company's earning a million dollars 
they extract every little dollar out of the company and now the net income is zero. Well, the net income there is understated because the CEO or the owner of the business, his market value isn't necessarily worth a million dollars a year. Now, he could think that, it, that he is, but oftentimes we, we try and strip out any related party sort of compensation. So you kind of strip that out and we'd say, well, you know what, this business is actually worth 100000 It's actually earning 100000 And the inverse, too, oftentimes is we'll have clients or owners that they don't take any salary at all like they don't they don't get compensated at all they don't because it just yeah, yeah they don't need it or they just want to reinvest into the company well that isn't the right answer either because you know what if you were to hire someone for the equivalent services that you'd prepare or you do then you'd sort of have to compensate them now whether that amount is hundred thousand or two hundred thousand it all really depends on what the owner does sometimes they actually do a lot in the business and they should be compensated for more oftentimes we find that you know what owners aren't doing much and you know they come in a few ta- few days a week, and they're still being compensated a million dollars or whatever. Or they have family members that are working in the business that they're paying their uh, son yeah. <laughs> forty or fifty thousand dollars to come in once in a while to sweep the floor. So is that justifiable? No. So what we do is we normalize what the earnings would be if someone were to acquire the business. Um, and look at the earnings. So we sort of remove sort of all the related party transactions. And that goes with if you're if they're dealing with any related party uh, suppliers, uh, you know, what we, we tend to sort of normalize that or remove sort of the, the related party transactions because th- those transactions aren't going to be at market and then we'll make an adjustment accordingly. This sounds pretty this sounds pretty tough. I mean, so at the beginning you said you you're using financial statements. Yeah, yeah. So I as mean, a basis. I, well, yeah, yeah, I know. But I, I mean, you guys aren't auditing these. No. So, I mean, what statements are you guys using? So, we're, we're using the statements that uh, their accountants prepare. Which is mostly a notice to reader? You know, sometimes it's a notice to reader, but okay. sometimes we have review engagements, audit statements. But we have those conversations with the clients to sort of smooth out those earnings, you know, and remove any sort of related party, any personal expenses that they could potentially have there. Because as an acquirer of the business or acquirer of those cash flows, you don't necessarily want to pay... Um, for what someone else is sort of earning, right? right. So if an owner is uh, putting personal expenses through the company, he shouldn't for tax purposes, but putting that aside, <laughs> uh, you want he's understating sort of his earnings. So an acquirer would actually get a higher value right. or a high, higher earnings if they were to acquire the business. So we, we normalize sort of the earnings. So that's one of the, the steps we do. Another thing we do as well is looking at the expenses side, there could be times where a company incurs a one-time uh, sort of expense that's not going to be re- reoccurring. So we sort of strip out that expense and say, well, you know what, in 2019, this company incurred, I don't know, uh, they had a, a minor fire, let's just say, in their in their factory, and they had some, some, some damaged material. So you know what, that's sort of a one-time, you'd hope not, you know, you're not going <laughs> to have a recurring fire every year. So we sort of add that expense going in because the earnings within that year are sort of understated. And we actually go through sort of the line items to say, oh, you know what, is this recurring? Is this not? Is this a one-time expense? By looking at the historical statements. Because oftentimes a company will incur a one-time uh, expense historically that isn't really synonymous for what are the expenses going forward. So I mentioned a uh, fire. You know what, if you have any professional fees that you're going to go through, let's say you're going through a corporate reorg, you're not going to incur those expenses sort of going forward. Right. Um, if you have a, a bad debt, for example, you know what, your your business is fairly steady. 
you earn, you know, your bad debts are really minimal. And then all of a sudden you had this one-time contract where, you know, unfortunately your customer didn't pay you and you had this huge expense that year. Well, you know, we'd sort of add that back because that's not just justifiable for what the future earnings or cash flows are. Gonna and be the and you're, you're averaging this over two years? Well, we, we, we discussed that with the, the owner to get a sense of, you know what, we, we tend to look at five years. Oh, okay. Five years look, gives us a steady stream of what the business is doing. But we tend to put more focus or emphasis on the most recent earnings. Because okay, that's more indicative of sort of what's going to happen in the future. <clears throat> but really what we're doing is we're trying to get a sense of what are the expenses going to be going forward. So as an example, if I'm dealing with a client and you know what, they're planning on moving to um, another rental uh, um, place where their lease expense is gonna be cut in half. Therefore, you know what, I would make that adjustment there because going forward, if someone were to buy this business, they're not gonna have that expense sort of going forward. So, so it sounds to me like you, uh, for the expenses, you guys, are, you guys are killing it and you're able to do this uh, very easily to figure out and normalize the expenses. What about like companies that are constantly growing they're in their growth phase even though you're using the current year for revenues yeah. um let's say they're 20 percent each year do you factor in prior year revenues or do you guys build a model for for still growth well i think in in that case it's a case-by-case okay. basis jp like if, if we're if the company's able to project going forward that they're going to earn sort of X amount of dollars going forward, then we'll sort of do a projected income statement and we'll sort of present value that. Um, my experience with private companies and even large private companies, it's, it, it's incredibly difficult to project with any uh, <laughs> Unless accuracy. you've like landed a, a, a guaranteed government contract or exactly. something like that. Exactly. Like if it's a right? guaranteed right. contract, yeah. we talked about um, certain assets I value, their, their infrastructure plays where, you know what, they're getting a set fee based on a recurring revenue. It, it, if earnings are going to be stable and you're able to predict those going forward, it's easier to do that. Um, oftentimes, I find dealing with clients is they think that their growth Oh, is yeah. going to increase <laughs> exponentially. So yeah. it's like they're the next Apple and they're the next Amazon. Um, and, and their expenses are going to stay in line. Yeah, their expenses <laughs> are going to increase 100 times indefinitely going forward. Uh, it, it's important to, to uh, keep them a little bit more grounded and make them realize that their growth uh, isn't going to be exponential. Like there will be a time when Apple doesn't increase 20% a year, right? Uh, it may not be next year, it may not be five years. So if you're factoring in that 20% growth in perpetuity, that multiple is going to be very high. And at a certain point in time, a purchaser isn't going to be willing to pay for that growth exponentially because it's not going to happen, right? right. Uh, eventually, that company will revert to the mean and the mean is generally inflation sort of going forward so okay yeah the conservative way well I, you know it's not it's not <laughs> just so much the conservative way it's just well it's probably the reality right it, there's a there's yeah. it's like a, a it's like looking at a child physically growing and it's like oh man they they like changed from last year to this year three pant sizes or whatever there's a point in time right. where that's going to stop I did that right? last year. Yeah. <laughs> so you can't use that analogy. Actually, I guess you're right. You're right. Yeah. <laughs> but there's a point. There's a point in time where where growth is going to stop, and then right. you become a massive company, and the only way to grow is through mergers and acquisitions, right? right? Yeah. You acquire sure. smaller companies, right? Yeah. But I think from from the perspective of what we're kind of touching in terms of 
private companies and getting an idea of like what the hell is my company worth yeah i think that this methodology or the you know the normalized earnings methodology multiplied by some sort of a reasonable right. multiple right. is an a way to um get an idea exactly right of what is it that my company is worth unless you're in a specified industry like um accounting uh, accounting book of business if you're just selling the book of business and yeah. not the building and this that, and the other you know i've seen i've seen it go anywhere from you know 80 percent of annual normalized revenues yeah up to one times um normalized revenues right or the the revenue of the book right if you're merging into a larger like kpmg or some other larger firm they're generally going on the lower end right right if you're selling to a private individual and you're willing to do a vendor take back they might be able to they might be willing to go a little bit higher right but other than that for people that have a store that sells like a bakery or yeah. something like that it, i don't know if there's really a standard based on revenue i think it's more normalized earnings by a multiple yeah right? I, I would say that there's certain industries where there's rules of thumbs and, and they sort of stick with that uh but generally the approach to take is you know what you normalize where your earnings will be going forward mm -hmm. and then the second component of that is we apply a multiple to those earnings this is the magic number yeah, yeah. this is the magic number <laughs> yeah. i want to know where you get it so explain what what that is so you normalize earnings we have normalized earnings okay, so we agree nor it's 100 grand yeah so a hundred thousand yeah. dollars and then we look at various risk components in the industry uh, that, you know, as a prospective buyer, if they were to acquire your business, what risks are, are they taking? So, you know, we kind of look at what, what's sort of a risk-free rate of return. So a risk-free rate of return, I don't know, is a government bond. They're extremely low right now. But you're yeah. looking at, like, if it's 1% or let's say it's 2%, you're looking at a huge multiple there, right? So it's really the inverse. So one over the, the rate uh, of risk. And in addition to that, you know what you apply sort of what are the public markets sort of returning on an average historically. So we're looking at, let's say, five or six percent. So you sort of build on the risks associated with operating this business. So think about it this way. If I were to just invest in the TSX and I'm getting a return of, let's say, seven to eight percent annually, that's risk free for me. So I don't have to buy. Uh, Joe's Bakery down the street. I don't have to wake up at five o'clock in the morning to operate it. I don't have to deal with customers. Uh, there's a risk or a premium that uh, you would have to compensate someone to deal with that. Right. Operating the business. So we look at that. We look at the industry uh, that the business operates. Obviously, there are certain industries which are more stable than others. Uh, for example, in, in the healthcare space, uh, you know, it's a very stable industry. So you're looking at a low premium to that industry. It's very similar to in the public markets, right? There's certain shares or there's certain industries that are more risky than others. So you're going to be compensated for that. And then in addition to that, we look at the size of the company. Um, you know, what larger companies tend to have more access to uh, financing for bank purposes. They're able to, unfortunately, squeeze their suppliers a little bit more. Uh, you know, talk about the Amazons of the world. You're willing to pay for sort of the premium there. Uh, because the, just the sheer size of them. And then we actually look at the components of the company themselves. So let's say you have two different companies, both in the automotive space and everything else, all the other parameters or revenues are the same, their markets are the same. Well, then we'll look at the individual uh, parameters of the company. So as an example, if one has a uh, longer branding or they've been in the business for a longer period of time, 
um, their earnings are a little more stable. Um, they have, uh, you know, employees that have been there for a really long time versus someone who's a new entrant uh, to the market. We'll sort of weigh those factors and apply a risk uh, premium to, 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 to certain things based on that company. So all in a nutshell, what that does is we look at sort of what the cost of equity or the cost that someone would, be, would need to be compensated to uh, purchase that business. Uh, and that's a percentage, and we just put an inverse on that. So essentially generates a multiple of earnings that someone would be willing to pay for that stream of earnings going forward. And to give you an example, let's say it's between four to five. If that's sort of the magic number that JP mentioned, we'd apply that four to five times multiple to the earnings that we've sort of normalized. So if the business was earning, like you mentioned, $100,000, we'd apply a multiple, let's say four, and for argument's sake, the business would be worth four hundred thousand dollars. And that's what you could expect if you put put a for sale sign up, and you know, a bunch you contacted a bunch of people. You could expect to get somewhere within that range. Yeah, like I, I think it's important when you're looking at fair market value. It's sort of the intrinsic value that the business sort of would uh, sell. Mm-hmm. If we're looking at sort of things. In, in sort of a vacuum there, looking at what, what the numbers sort of, sort of generate. One thing I, I will mention is when we're coming up with a valuation, it's, it's unfortunately at a point in time. So if it's at December 31st, 2020, it's at that point in time because, you know what, that's when uh, the balance sheet sort of finalized. That's when sort of the earnings are, are, are sort of normalized for that period. Um, valuations change, unfortunately. You know what, a perfect example is if we look at sort of the COVID pandemic, right? If you did evaluation December 31st, 2019, based on what your projections would be sort of going forward or your earnings are going forward, and you know what, you happen to be in the tourism business. You know what, three months later, yeah. you know what, unfortunately what's happened to the market and what's happened to the industry, it's changed dramatically, right? So I would say that, you know what, if you did evaluation three months after, and you looked at, you know what, February 2020 or, or March 2020, it would be dramatically different just because valuation is sort of a point in time. And unfortunately, no one sort of can predict the future or what you will sort of earn going forward. So it, it's important to put a caveat to, you know, what, what a valuation is. And then even valuations within businesses, if you do a valuation for a business five years ago and you know what, your revenues have steadily declined and you know what, someone's entered in the market now and you know what, it's a more competitive market, or you know what, you're losing market share, is your business gonna be worth the same? Well, chances are no, right. just because there's so many things that are, that are changing, so. So I guess then um, we got a basic idea of how you guys are, are calculating values, how the market is generally looking at um, private businesses. So from a private business owner's perspective, right you you've been in business for a while and um you know you're like hey i want to uh i want to eventually sell this thing yeah right what are the what are the factors in your opinion that are going to increase the sales price for for the business owner what are the things that are going to make it more attractive in 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 the market yeah so as i mentioned earlier what i would say is if you're looking to potentially sell your business, it's important to do proper planning uh, years in advance. So I would say that, you know what, talk to your advisor, 
get a sense of what you have to do because uh, very similar to if you were to sell your home, what are the things that people do when, when they sell their home? Yeah, they got to fix it up. Yeah, they're going to fix it up. You know what? They'll give it a paint job. They'll hire a stager, you know, and having gone through this process recently, I would say that they're, it's definitely worth sort of sprucing up your home to maximize sort of the value. So you have to use the same sort of analogy and tactics when you're looking to sell your business. So from a tax planning perspective, you have to do this anyways, because there are certain um, tax advantages uh, to a seller if they sort of clean up what their business is ahead of time. So it's important to talk to your advisor a couple of years ahead of time. Uh, what I would say to uh, someone who's looking to sell their business is there to clean up sort of their earnings and, and look at sort of what it can do to um, make my business look better than it has been historically. So there's a number of things that you can do from an earnings perspective. So what I would say is, you know what, sort of reevaluate your business and say, you know what, is there anything that I, I can do to to uh, either A, increase my revenues, or B, decrease my expenses, or, or a combination of the two. Really, you want to focus on maximizing your earnings because an acquirer looking to buy your business, they're going to purchase it or look at what's your most recent sort of earnings because that's the most significant to me as an acquirer uh, and, to, and it should be to you as a seller, right? You're less concerned about what the business did in 2016 or 2015 but if you show that revenue growth in 2021 or 2020, someone could see, well, you know what, that's sort of what the business is going to be earning sort of going forward. Right. So, you know what, you look, want to look at your expenses, sort of cut anything that you find discretionary. Um, if, you, if you're if you overstocked, you know what, you want to sort of uh, make that as lean as possible, sort of cut your, cut your expenses. If there's sort of any regular maintenance that, you, that you've done in the past or if you can sort of invest in that CapEx, capital expenditures sort of reduce those expenses. You want to clean up your income statement as much as possible to really drive that earnings growth. And on the flip side of that, if you're dealing with customers that, you know what, they aren't paying you as much or your margins are really low for those specific customers, maybe it's time to sort of cut loose or, you know what, uh, talk to your uh, customers about improving your bad debt uh, or your collections or talk to your suppliers about sort of improving uh, rates so you can sort of make your business look uh, more appetizing to a potential purchaser. So you want to focus on the earnings. I would say that's the first thing you can do. The second thing which you can focus on is your balance sheet. So uh, your balance sheet, normally uh, when a a purchaser buys your shares, they're going to be buying the balance sheet that you have there. So it's important to clean that up as well. And you want to focus on what are the core assets that are contributing to my business and focus on those and less so on non-operating assets. So if you have any excess inventory or excess uh, capital assets that aren't necessarily generating a return, you want to sort of strip those away because if you're, if you're going to be selling your business, each one of those line items is going to be in negotiation. So if you can make your balance sheet as clean as possible to say, these are all my assets or these are all my liabilities that I need to operate on an ongoing basis. It'll be easier to transact with that purchaser. Uh, so another example, if you have any redundant assets, so redundant assets are essentially assets that aren't necessarily contributing to the business. So oftentimes we'll deal with a uh, owner operator who has who owns a building, right? So real estate in itself has different risk profiles than the business itself. 
So you want to sort of strip the real estate portion from from your operating company and sell the operating company as is because they have different risk profiles. Mm -hmm. There's tax purposes for, for that too. So you really want to look at the balance sheet on a line-by-line -line basis and sort of clean that up. So you want to basically have clean financials, good op good good operating income. Yeah. Um, that's all kind of... Uh, pretty logical and do this right and and, and you want to start and, the process yeah. early don't do it right now no. it, yeah you know you got yeah. you got to plan for this two years in advance this is where your plan comes through yeah. what about sort of these non-financial things right if i'm looking to buy a business yeah if i'm looking to buy a business i'm going to want to buy a business that is more employee run with long-term employees rather than owner manager run right because you mentioned like the bakery yeah. like Am I really interested in paying somebody a million dollars to buy myself a job where I have to wake up at four o'clock in the morning to, to get a bunch of baguettes in the oven? I'm not really interested in that. I'm more interested in a, in a turnkey thing where, okay, maybe I provide directorship and I make sign the checks and whatever. I commit some time to that. But for the most part, it's it's operating on its own. Does that come into play as well? Yeah, no, absolutely. So I think it's important that when you're looking to purchase a business, um, certain businesses are easier to sell th than others. Um, and I would say that if you're in the sort of the manufacturing or, or, or product-based business versus a service-based business, those tend to uh, be easier to sell because there's uh, commercial goodwill. And essentially what, what I mean by that is... product. Yeah, if someone were to purchase that business... Uh, the business's value isn't necessarily tied into the person themselves. So as an example, we'll say a, a barber shop, right? Um, the, he, he has a sort of steady clientele that, you know, he's been dealing with the last 20 years. It's sort of tied into his business. So if someone were to look to acquire um, that business, would you be willing to go to the new barber? You know, some clients would be, some clients won't, right? Oh, you know, I've trusted... Uh, let's say Tony for the last 20 years cutting my hair. I, I wouldn't know. I haven't been to a barber in a number of years. Uh, but you know what? They have that trust and that's that personal goodwill that they have. So for businesses that um, are service-based or a lot of the value is sort of tied into uh, the individual owners, uh, you can't really sell that, right? So, you know, if someone were to acquire that business, really they would just buy sort of their supplies, you know, what their chairs, maybe the, the lease that, that they bought and, and sort of the utensils and start to start from scratch there. Um, but on the flip side of that, if you're a business that is less inclined, that it, it doesn't have that sort of personal goodwill, and if someone who's knowledgeable about that business can easily transition and operate that business, uh, they're, they're easier to sell, so to speak, because you know what, there isn't that personal goodwill. There's the commercial goodwill that it can be transferred over to a new owner who buys that business. Perfect. Right. right. So from our perspective, I think that was really good. Um, we covered uh, when you're going to need a business valuation from or for a private company, the different methodologies yep. uh, that you guys use, charter business valuators use to value the business, to value a private business, and then some techniques or some considerations when you're ready to sell your business, how to plan for getting top dollar, right? Right. Obviously, there's going to be a, a hell of a lot of um, small details that go into all of this, but that's why we hire people like you, right? Exactly. So where are you working right now? So and like, how do people find you? 
So you can contact me through Campanella McDonald. Uh, I'm working for a boutique uh, valuation uh, firm called Calix Valuations in Toronto. Mm -hmm. uh, and we do all the things that, that I sort of mentioned for M&A, transactions, uh, litigation support, uh, et cetera. So. Perfect. All right. Yeah. yeah.